great big shout out to all my friends this morning. How are you on this Sunday? Glad to have you with me from wherever you're watching us here at the Digital Cathedral from Texas, which is God's country, to whatever country you might live in outside the United States. Just before I get into the teaching this morning, I want to encourage you to do two or three things. First of all, hit the subscribe button. What that subscribe button does, it gives you, when you subscribe to this channel, it gives you notification whenever we come on and do a premiere teaching like we're doing this morning at the Digital Cathedral. Second of all, make sure you hit the like. The like helps us with the logarithms of YouTube and gets us in front of more people. So make sure you hit the like button. If you aren't subscribed, make sure that you subscribe. And then when the when the teaching is done, if you'd be so kind as to come down and make a comment. Make a comment on something you learned, something you like, something you question. Just make a good comment because that encourages people that are looking for a teaching maybe on whatever the topic is that we're teaching on. Like this morning, uh, teaching on, if I were to give it a title, I'd call it Perception is Everything. So when somebody goes to YouTube and they look for perception or man's perception, if this, if this is um, a well-liked video, it'll pop up there for people to see. So it's important that you put a like, give me a good comment, and make sure that you subscribe. Okay, let's start in John this morning. I already told you that if I were to put a title on this this morning, it would be Perception is Everything. And while you're turning over to John chapter 5, let me talk to you about, just for a minute, about a message I received from a lady uh, who said, I'm new to this. And uh, a friend gave me your name. And this happens quite a bit. A friend gave me your name, and she said, I have heard that grace, listen to this, I've heard that grace is defined as love that is given and that is not earned or deserved. She said, could this possibly be true? To the religious mind, to you and I at the Digital Cathedral, where we've studied this in detail, it just seems like a given. But people that are coming out of a religious mindset to think that grace is not earned or deserved, especially by obedience. See, we believed in uh, grace. Every church is a grace church. Every church says they teach grace. But there's always a hook, and the hook is obedience. The hook is uh, surrender. There's just a lot of religious hooks that come, and once those hooks are met, then God may, may favor you with his grace. So she said, is it possible that grace is given it's love given, it's not earned or deserved. So I messaged the lady back and I said, yeah, it's very true. Grace runs on a one-way street from the Father to you. And it has nothing to do with anything that you do or don't do. It is just the favor of God that is imputed directly into your life. And she messaged me back and she said, thank you so much. She said, of all, of all the... Uh, uh, suffering of all the, the things that I've been abused with in my life. She said, I have found that religious abuse is the worst. And maybe some of you can relate to that. You were abused by religion. All spiritual abuse comes out of, out, out of really one root. It comes out of manipulation and control, the desire to manipulate and control, and it has its root in fear, always fear, developing insecurity, painting a picture of, of God that is uh, 180 degrees from the picture that Jesus gave to us. So if we're going to live the Christ as us life, if we're going to walk this thing out, then you and I have got to learn to demonstrate a father that mirrors perfectly the father that Jesus demonstrated. And that's what I want to talk to you about this morning. I want to talk to you about perception is everything. And really what, what the basis of the message is today is this. I want to make sure that I clear out any misconceptions that we have about the father because misconceptions have a way of sneaking back into our life in the wear and tear of life, um, the adverse circumstances maybe we face, the, the, the give and take. It's easy for things to creep in that put us back in the religious mindset on, on some level that God's not as good as what we thought. So we're going to look at John this morning. I love the book of John. That's why I think beginning in January, we're going we're gonna to salt and pepper our way through the book of John, because John unveils the father of Jesus and the relationship that the father and Jesus had to each other in a way that none of the other writers of the New Testament, even Paul, Paul does not reveal this relationship that Jesus had with the father the way that John does. John has this special revelation. He had insight and he had understanding of the oneness 
that Jesus felt with the Father, with the love that Jesus and the Father shared together. And the powerful thing about John is that John then, throughout his writings, reaches out and brings you and I into that love embrace of the Father and the Son and includes us in exactly the same embrace. In fact, Jesus prayed. He prayed, Father, I, I pray that they would know that the love that you have for me, you have for them also. And he said, the glory that you've given me, I've given them. So John does a great job, and that's in John 17. He does a great job of pulling us into that circle. And I, I want to go through that <clears throat> on some level in, uh, in January because I want you to see that for yourself. And I want us to make sure that we experience it. But this morning, <clears throat> excuse me. This morning, we're going to let John be our guide through the teaching. And what I want us to see is the Father through the eyes of Jesus. And I want us to be able to weed out any, any misconceptions, any perceptions that are skewed um, on any level, no matter how small it is. Because when you don't see the Father right, here's what it does. It puts a crack in the foundation of grace and the finished work and unconditional love and mercy that endures forever. It puts a little crack in that foundation when we have a, a perception of the Father that's not fully what Jesus revealed him to be. And through that crack will come fear, doubt, unbelief, condemnation, guilt, shame. All of those cousins come rushing through the crack when we don't have a, a full perception of the Father uh, that's exactly like Jesus gave it. So I'm going to go through five things this morning that will help you to weed out anything that is brewing in your life, maybe in just a seed form. Maybe it's just kind of popping up there that and it, that has put the Father in, a, in a, um, a light that is not what Jesus gave us. The foundation is laid in life by knowing the Father and you are one. That's the foundation. And that there's nothing that can shake that foundation. Same foundation that Jesus and the Father had. Same relationship. The same relationship that Jesus had as the Son with the Father. You and I have exactly the same relationship. In fact, can I go so far as to tell you this? This may put your mind on tilt because of some religious training. But Jesus was not favored over you as a Son with the Father. I'll let that one sink in because I think we all have this at some point in our life, this perception that Jesus was kind of the favored son. Yeah, I'm called a son of God, but Jesus was really the favored one. No, he wasn't. When the father looks at you, he looks at you apart from your works, apart from your efforts, apart before you ever do anything noteworthy, if you ever do anything noteworthy, which is beside the point, he looks at you and he says, you're a beloved son, you're a beloved daughter in whom I'm well pleased. That's what he said to Jesus when he was baptized in the river. And Jesus at that point had not done a miracle, had not done anything spectacular. He had just grown up to 30 years of age. He learned a lot of things along the way. Uh, I think God was working in his life just like he works in ours. But at the baptism of Jesus, the words that he said to Jesus, I want you to understand he says the same word to you, apart from miracles, apart from signs, teaching, wonders, uh, being something that the world would look at as being special. He looks at you and he says, yeah, you're my beloved son in whom I well pleased. Jesus could demonstrate the Father. Jesus demonstrated complete trust and a sense of security in the hand of the Father because he fully understood the lo Father's love for him was unconditional. And so Jesus could confidently say, say things. And John picks up a lot of them. For example, in John chapter 5, if you've found that, John chapter 5, verse 30, Jesus says this. Let me just back it up here. I'm going, to, I'm, I'm going to skip real quick to John 8. But in John chapter 5 and verse 30, Jesus said, I can of my own self do nothing. Right here, that, that, that the very first sentence, the very first statement of Jesus tells me of his trust in the Father that he just leans back into the Father and he doesn't feel like he has to accomplish anything in himself. Of my own self, I can do nothing. As I hear, I judge. My judgment is righteous because I don't seek my own will but the will of the one who sent me, All right? So Jesus said, here's what I'm primed to do. I'm primed to do the will of the Father, not to do my will. Matter of fact, I don't have to do anything of my own because I can't. So I rest in him and I let him do his job through me or as me. Now come over to John chapter eight. He says somewhat the same thing. John chapter eight, verse 28. And this is what I love about John because he has these insights that Matthew, Mark, and Luke 
absolutely don't even mention. In fact, Paul doesn't even get into the relationship that Jesus had with the Father in the depth that John does. All right, the 28th verse, 8th chapter of John. Jesus said to them, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing of myself. I don't do anything of myself, chapter 5, because I can't. I can't do anything of myself. Therefore, I don't do anything of myself. But as my Father taught me, I speak those things. So everything that the Father taught Jesus came out of this relationship of love. John is loaded with insights like that. John is loaded with revelation that uh, creates the mind of Christ that you and I also need to function in to get the right view of the Father. So the whole beginning of the paradigm shift that we experience as we begin to live the Christ as us life, the whole paradigm shift is an encounter, an absolute encounter for yourself of the love of the Father, right? You, you need to personally, you don't need to ask him into your heart. He's already there. You don't need to pray to Jesus save you. He's already saved you. But I think what you really need to meditate and think about is the love of the Father until you encounter it for yourself. And there will be a point when the love of the Father just overwhelms you. Maybe as you're driving in your car one day, driving in your pickup truck, whatever you, whatever you have, out mowing the lawn, that the love of the Father just overwhelms you and it breaks through everything else. And when that reality hits, and some of you know what I'm talking about because you've encountered that love. I mean, you, you, you cry like a baby when it hits you. And it, it just flushes you out, just gets rid of all the junk. And when the reality of the Father's inclusive love has a head-on crash then, and it will, with all the religious stuff, the mindsets, the misconceptions, the bad teaching, the inclusive love of the Father, they have a head-on crash. I'm going to tell you something. Something has to move. And it's not going to be the inclusive, unconditional love of the Father that moves. That love is steadfast. It's sure. It doesn't change. It doesn't vacillate. It's not up today, down tomorrow. It's not, not poured out today and withdrawn tomorrow. I assure you, the God that Jesus introduces us to is not going to move on his end from the love that he's demonstrated. So as you get this right view of the Father, and I'm going to make sure this morning that your view is right, because we're going to weed some things out that maybe have crept in. But this view, this view of the Father releases us then to live as sons and daughters, the sons and daughters that we are. You are a son, you are a daughter. But to really be released into that sonship takes, I think, in a, a, a real infilling, and I don't know how else to describe it, because it's an unveiling, it's a, it's a revelation, it's a filling up of the, of the love of the Father. So as you inhale this freedom of grace, that's a stepping stone to it. Grace takes us to the unconditional love of the Father. When grace settles in, one of the first things that hit me after grace, pure, radical, hyper-grace, apart from works, apart from effort, apart from standards, apart from law, really hit me. The first thing then that began to open my eyes, my eyes were open to, was the unconditional love of the Father. That's what grace took me to almost immediately. So as you inhale grace, and the, the more grace you see, the more you can inhale it. The more, the more grace you inhale, then you exhale the power of his love to the people that are around you. It's so much easier to love people when you're filled with grace. It just lowers, you don't have high expectancy on people anymore. You don't judge them. You're not harsh with them. You love them. And it's just a work of the Father. The more that you understand grace as you take it in, you breathe out the love, and let me say this, you can't exhale. It's physically impossible to exhale more than you inhale. So the important part is to inhale the grace so that you can exhale the love. So grace is the message that we carry, right? That's the grace we, we carry. But love is the message we demonstrate. So there's a carrying of the message and there's a demonstrating of the message. They work hand in hand. They, they, they work uh, hand in glove. The more grace you have, the more gracious you become, then the more loving you also will be. So whenever you slip back into this view of God, you know, in the wear and tear of life or, you know, adversity, whenever you slip back into this view of an angry, judicial, vengeful God, what we do is we, we cap grace off. We cap it off and, and we can't ex expel, we can't exhale the love like we would like to. We can't walk in that dimension of the crisis, us life, that really is fulfilling. And once you touch it, once you see it, once you experience it, you can't get away from it. 
Christ, the Christ says us life is addictive. I mean, absolutely is addictive. It makes you want more grace and more love, more understanding of, of, of how the Father is. And the further you get away from this judgmental God. So when you look over at your Christian friends, here's what happens. A judgmental God produces judgmental followers. That helps you to understand why some of your friends back from the evangelical church are so judgmental. They have a view of a judgmental God. The view of a judgmental God is going to reproduce judgmental followers. You become like the God you serve. If you serve a God of grace, of love, of mercy, that's how you're going to become. It's a natural transformation. There was nothing in the life of Jesus, in the perfect reflection of the Father that Jesus carried, that was ever angry or judgmental. Yeah, he was angry and judgmental at a system, at a religious system. He, he bucked. He bucked up against the things that the Pharisees brought that kept people in bondage, but Jesus, Jesus never condemned anybody. Jesus demonstrated in his life and in his treatment of people, even the most vile, we would look at it and say, that, that guy is terrible. Look at those, you know, Pee Wee Simon climbs up in a tree and he, and, he, and he sees Jesus coming. And he says, Jesus looks at him and says, come down, I'm going to your house for dinner. People go, you shouldn't even associate with that guy. You should have nothing to do with Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus climbs up in the tree, his short little guy, and he wanted to get a view of Jesus. But he was not well thought of in his society. Matthew, the tax collector, was not well thought of. And Jesus looks in and says, come follow me. Woman caught in adultery. You know, that's the one we always spring to. But I'll tell you what, there's Jesus... Every person Jesus encountered was living under some bondage because it was all covenant. And he never judged. He never was, he never was harsh. So that's what Jesus demonstrated. Now, what Paul did, Paul comes along and puts theology, puts a belief system to what Jesus demonstrated. For example, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 19, it says, I know this one by heart, it says that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Mission of Jesus was to reconcile. It was always reconciliation. One judgment wasn't harshness. It was reconciliation. And then in, in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, he says this. He says, this, this is how God's love is demonstrated, in that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. He died for us. And I want to read this one for you out of Colossians chapter 1 and verse 11. Colossians chapter 1 and, and verse 11. It says that he is strengthened with all, that we should be strengthened with all might according to his glorious power, with all patience, long suffering, and joy. Now watch this, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be a partaker of the inheritance of the saints in light. So not only did he he reconcile us, not only did he absolutely love us, and Paul puts Paul puts belief to this. Paul says that we also have been qualified by him for an inheritance. So when you're qualified for the inheritance, that means you receive the inheritance. Don't have to try to get it. It belongs to you. The inheritance is yours. Jesus fleshed it out. Paul says, here's what we believe based on the view of the Father that Jesus brought to us. So let me give you five signs this morning uh, that may uncover if you're still holding any kind of wrong view about God. Fair enough. I'm just going to go. I'm going to go through five of these. For some of you, this is kind of a review. For some of you, this may not hit. But I know in my life, I'm just talking about me now. I know that sometimes, uh, when tough times hit, when something really pushes against you, like the, a report from the doctor, all of a sudden you find yourself praying to the sky god to come meet your need, and you forget that you are the temple of the, of the Spirit of God, that God lives in you, that you are his temple, that he, he dwells in you, and everything you need is already within you. You forget that. And so you go back to the sky, God. That's, that's having a wrong perception. And you get in a habit of that. Pretty soon you're begging, pleading, squalling, and bawling to God like you did back in your religious days for God to come meet your needs. So if there's anything that I want this, I want this message to do, I want this teaching to do this morning, is to pull those weeds out that are gonna restrict us or try to hinder us as we push forward in 2022, we're gonna we're gonna push into some big things, some good things, some strong things, some revelatory things. I already know where we're going on some level, 
But I'll tell you what, as the year unfolds, it's going to be a lot deeper than what I envision. I know that. I know that it's going to be deeper. So this morning, I just want to make sure that our perception is reality in the right way. That the perception we have of the Father is the reality that we live in. So here's five signs that may reveal a little bit if we still have a wrong perception of God. All right, number one is this. You're motivated by shame instead of love. You're motivated by shame instead of love. Feelings of guilt or feelings of regret of something that you've done wrong. When we, when we mess up, it's easy to all of a sudden feel that God separated from us, that he doesn't love us like we thought he did before we did what we thought was wrong. We think we slide back into that thing that God's opinion of us is based on how we please him or what we do, what we accomplish, how we obey him, how we love him, that he responds to our love. No, that's never, that is never the case. We are always the responders. He is always the initiator. Etch that deep into your psyche. You are never the initiator of the love toward the Father. You're always the responder. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, let me read that for you. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. We're motivated, if you're motivated by any sense of shame, by guilt, uh, anything along that line, uh, instead of strictly being motivated by love, then you're carrying on some level, a wrong perception of the Father. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16 says, Let us come boldly to the throne of grace. That throne of grace is where you think you fouled up, you think you've messed up, you think you've done something that, that's not pleasing to God. The throne of grace, right? It's a grace throne. It's not a works throne. It's a it's a throne that has been totally prepared by um that one-way love that the woman asked about. Can God really love us without our actions, without our, our obedience? Can he really love us like that? See, that's what the throne of grace is about. Let us come boldly. With, with shame, you can't come boldly. This is Shame will um, drain your boldness. Drain your boldness. Let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain, obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Hebrews 4.16 ought to be a verse that you just live in, knowing that you may need to come to that throne of grace because you feel like you have messed up. You feel like you've done something that is wrong. Shame drains boldness. You cannot come boldly if you're full of shame. Shame wants to cover up. Shame wants to excuse. Shame wants to uh, scapegoat. It wants to uh, fill you with fear. It wants you to feel alienated. Shame wants you to feel separated. Isn't that exactly what happened to Adam? When Adam disobeyed God, all of a sudden in Adam's mind, he's now separated. God's angry. There was no indication. There was nothing that happened in the relationship between God and Adam that should have made Adam ever feel anything other than a unity with the Father. In fact, God came looking for him. He didn't run from Adam. He, you know, religion always says God can't look on sin. Well, he sure sure looked on Adam. He looked on the original guy that that disobeyed. So knowing that you're loved, absolutely knowing that you're loved, apart from your actions, produces confidence. Let me say that again. Knowing that you're loved, apart from your actions, your deeds, it produces a confidence so that you can come to that throne of grace boldly. All right, so, so, so you fouled up. So you did something that you say, man, I wish I hadn't have done it. That's not the way Jesus would have done it. Knowing that you're loved outside of your actions lets you come to that throne of grace boldly. But if you allow yourself to be filled with shame, you're not going to come boldly. You're going to come like Adam did by hiding. You're going to cover up. You're going to you're going to sow fig leaves on yourself, thinking God can't see who you really are. Who told you you were naked? Who told you you were unaccepted? See, that's what God is saying. So God's trying to get across to us that what should motivate us is His love. If you understand the Father never deals with you, never deals with you through shame. The way He deals with you never never is based on regret or or guilt. We, if, you, if you're regretting things in your past, ditch them this morning. Let that love that is that maybe can overflow. You did some things in the past that you regret. Who didn't? Who didn't? 
Now, if you're going to live in that regret, you'll never, you'll never have boldness. You'll never walk in the crisis us life. You'll not walk in the fullness of it. And he's saying to you this morning, if that's the conception you have, if that's the conception and you're motivated by that shame, that regret, that condemnation, if you're feeling apart and alienated from God on any, on a, 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 any degree, then let the knowledge that his relationship with you is not based on what you do. It's based on what he's done, which is absolutely accepting of you apart from any of your actions. Feelings of shame, guilt, condemnation. You know where they come from? They come from your mind. Listen, they come from your mind that feeds at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You've done something and you've judged it as good or evil. God doesn't judge it as good or evil. It's not one or the other. It can be it can be both, and I'm not going to get in, into that this morning. But the reason that you're feeling any shame, guilt, condemnation, any separation from God is because you have fed on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and you think, you think based on what that tree tells you, that you've done something that is not right. Now, your spirit doesn't feed on that. Your spirit feeds on the tree of life, which is love. It, 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 it causes shame and guilt to dissipate. It evaporates. It evaporates shame and guilt. So live your life in response to his love, which never varies, never fluctuates, never vacillates, and it never comes out of fear, anger, or disappointment that would ever shame you. So this morning, if you're feeling any shame or guilt, get rid of it. Put it, put it under his love, knowing that it's come from your mind that has fed on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and has not come from the heart of God to you, right? Jesus never, never condemned. Jesus never shamed. Jesus never convicted anybody. He spent, he loved, his, he loved everybody. He loved, he loved spending time with sinners and the outcasts, okay? So get rid of that. All right, number two, this is, man, this is so big. This is big in life. I've spent hours counseling people on this. Number two, you're scared of being outside of God's will instead of trusting him to guide you. Oh, you're afraid of being outside of God's will. I have spent so much time with people who have spent their whole life trying to find God's will. Like God's will is this mystical, magical, hidden thing that God just delights in you searching for but never finding. But back in the 90s, in the early 2000s, you know, up till the time I was past, stopped, stopped pastoring, really, destiny was a big word. Everybody was wanting to know what their destiny was. It was always in front of us. It was always ahead of us. It was always a mystery. What's my destiny? I don't feel like I have a destiny. I don't, I, 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 I'm afraid I'm going to miss God's will. Spend hours with people that are feeling bad. And look, they say, I've looked at my life. I've not done anything. I, I don't know if I've missed God's plan for my life. The fear of missing God's will. If, if we do, then all of a sudden we've displeased God. That's not how God works. The fear of missing God's will, and if we do, is gonna, he's going to demonstrate a displeasure in us. And here's the bad thing. Here's what, here's what was taught in church. If you miss God's will, life is going to be unfulfilling. Life's going to be a mess. Life's not going to be the best. In fact, you're going to have to settle. If you miss God's will, God has a perfect will for you. This was a teaching. He has a perfect will for you. And if you miss it, you're going to have to settle for second or third best. That kind of fear breeds insecurity. That kind, of, that kind of fear makes us strive all the time. And there's a, there's a common characteristic that I noticed in people that are always looking to fulfill God's will, thinking they've missed it. What is it? I don't know what God's will is for me. Can you help me find God's will? Counsel me. Help me to find God's will. Every person that I ever counseled, talked to about that, they never achieved the center of his perfect will. They always felt like it was unattainable, that it was out of reach. It, it, it's like a carrot, always in front of you, chasing it all the time. The truth is the the truth is this: the Father, through the Spirit, will guide you and lead you and pull you into His will. Let me set your mind at rest today. Whatever you're doing right now is an important piece of the puzzle for your life. You say, "I'm not doing anything." 
That's fine. That's exactly what you need to do. You're better to just rest and wait, hibernate for the winter, whatever, than to just jam out and get yourself in some kind of quandary that you don't need to be in. Abraham, Moses, David, Jesus, and Paul, and many others demonstrated that the plan, the will of God is impossible to miss. Impossible. Jonah. Jonah tried to miss God's will on purpose. He said, I I'm not going down to Nineveh. I'm not going down there. And what did God do? God just let him circle, let him circle back, and he hit the will. In Luke chapter 12, verse 32, Jesus said, fear not, little flock. Fear not, because it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. The kingdom is your will. Functioning in the kingdom, whatever you're doing, you're a kingdom person. I hope you take this in the right spirit. Set the perfect will of God aside. Put it on the back burner and become a kingdom person. Become a kingdom dweller. Become a, become a, a son that is manifesting. When you go to the store, I just got done telling you 10 minutes ago, we carry the message of grace and we demonstrate the message of love. So where, you want to be in God's perfect will? then carry the message of grace and demonstrate the message of love. That puts you smack dab in the middle of God's will. I don't care if you're flipping hamburgers or you're a billionaire oil man. You want to be in the center of God's will? It has nothing to do with being a billionaire oil man, flipping burgers at McDonald's. It has nothing to do with being a car salesman or a school teacher or a lawyer or a doctor or a plumber or a lecturer. It has nothing to do with that. Hitting the center of God's will is when you carry the message of grace and you demonstrate the message of love. That puts you right in the middle of God's will. So I don't, like I say, I don't care what you're doing this morning. I want you to have confidence. You cannot miss it. The Holy Spirit has been assigned the responsibility of leading you strongly enough that you will have no fear of missing the Father's will. That's what we do here at the Digital Cathedral. We just encourage you and let you know you're not going to miss it. You're manifesting as a son. You're manifesting as a daughter. The will of God is not a search in desperation where you have to feel all panicked that you're going to miss the best life possible. You're not going to miss the best life possible. If you stick with me, that's, what we're, that, that's everything we teach, bringing you to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Do you think in life, that is functioning at this, it's a stature of the measure of the fullness of Christ is a life that's going to miss God's will? Of course not. Of course not. Paul said this. He must have dealt with, with the Philippians about this issue because I love what Paul says in, in, in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6. He says, Being confident of this very thing, that he that begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. So let's just, let's just look at it like this. The work that the Father began in you was the perfect will. And the one who began the perfect will has the responsibility to bring it to a perfect completion. Would you please take that weight off of your shoulders? Please take that weight off of your life. All right, number three. Number three, you feel a need to defend the gospel instead of revealing the gospel. You have a wrong view of the Father if you feel like you have to defend the gospel rather than reveal the, the gospel, right? Here's the caveat. Nothing wrong with a lively discussion about your spiritual views. I do that all the time. I, there's probably not a day goes by. Somebody doesn't message me. How about this? I believe this. And you said this. And all. There's nothing wrong with a lively discussion. But when you're driven by this need to defend and to be, always be right, there's none of us that are totally right. But when you're driven by this need that you have to defend what you believe and that you have to be right, it just could be that you are insecure in your beliefs and you're not seeing the Father in the light of, I'm just perfecting you. I'm working. This is a journey. The Father's telling us this is a journey. We don't have it right yet. We, we may not get it right for ages to come because we're going to keep uh, diving, deep diving into his goodness and his mercy and his love. So get rid of this thing. It's, it's a wrong view of the Father. It, it, you know, here's, here's why it arises. Because we don't have intimate relationship with the Father, that sense of oneness, of union, 
of being part of that perichoretic circle of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that circle dance that we've held, hold hands with them and we joyfully uh, are in union together. We don't have that. And so our security is based around our, our doctrine, our beliefs rather than relationship. When, you're, when your security with the Father is based on relationship, you can debate theology, you can deba debate eschatology, end time views, soteriology, theories of salvation, the atonement theories of whether it's penal substitution, ransom theory, Christus Victor, what, there's several atonement theories. All those things you can speculate on and you don't become offended at it. You don't become offended. Jesus didn't die and rise again to defend a set of principles or a systematic theology. He did not die to create a new religion or, a, or, a, or a, a, an apologetics for what was a good theology. That's not why he died. Did you ever notice Jesus never defended his message? Never defended his message. He revealed it through the way that he lived. Every time he was accused, when the, when the, when the religious accused him, it was because he was revealing his message through the way that he lived. Boy, if that'll break through to us, that'll break through to me. He never defended. When you are secure in the love and the grace of the Father, you're not moved to debate anymore. I, I see a lot less debate going on Facebook, on social media than used to be. It used to be, man, everybody was debating. When I first came into this, I would make a post and no kidding, I haven't seen this in months. There would be 500 and more comments on my post. And a lot of it would be me defending, others defending, others attacking, me defending, me attacking. It would be all that nonsense. Grace and love teach us that God does not be need to be defended. You know what the Father really loves? He loves to be revealed. He loves to be unveiled through the way that we live. The best defense of the gospel, the most powerful tool that we have as sons and daughters is to demonstrate this radical grace and an unconditional love lifestyle. That's the greatest message we could ever we could ever have. That's the greatest message we could ever impart. All right. So don't feel like you have to defend. If you feel like you have to defend rather than reveal, it just may be that you're insecure in your position with the Father, because the Father's love is so overwhelming to us that we don't have to argue about it. We have to debate it. We don't have to push back against people. Remember, grace is the message that we carry. Love is the message we demonstrate. I want you to, I want that to be a takeaway from the teaching this morning because when you're in that mode, then you're seeing the Father correctly. All right, number four. Here might be another little indicator that, uh, that you're not seeing the Father correctly. Oh, this is big. You equate, you equate hardship with holiness. I spent years suffering for Jesus. <laughs> Suffer, and what I mean by that is hurting the flesh, denying the flesh. If you equate pain and suffering, let me take it down a notch. If you equate pain and suffering with being holy and living godly, then you've misjudged the heart of the Father because the Father does not punish us or bring pain and suffering on us to perfect us. That's not the way of the Father. Now, you may open some doors yourself, you smoke three packs of cigarettes for 40 years, you could bring lung cancer on yourself. That's not God teaching you a lesson. You walk around with a belligerent, hostile attitude. People are going to rebuff you, rebuke you, and come against you. That's not God trying to teach you a lesson. That's not the devil coming against you. That's your problem. When Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, that's not a celebration of suffering with Jesus. In fact, we were crucified with Christ. So when you take up, he didn't say take up his cross, did he? He said, take up your cross. So on your cross, what you do is you crucify everything that is contrary to carrying the message of grace and demonstrating the message of love. That might be your ego. That might be um, insecurities, fears, whatever it is that is that is stopping you from demonstrating that message you put it on a cross and you do away with it. But really, the, the call to take up your cross is an invitation to live in the power of his resurrection. When you take up your cross, it needs to be with the view that 
that you're to live the resurrected life. There's no resurrection without a cross. I'll grant you that. But it was Jesus' cross that brought the resurrection into light, not, not me carrying the cross. Yes, sacrifice is part of the journey. See, sac I sacrifice for this ministry. I sacrifice time. I sacrifice time to study and prepare to, to do what I do for the Digital Cathedral on Sunday morning and for the, the Secret Place on Wednesday night and for answering people's questions and feeding back and forth to people. That's a sacrifice. But it's not suffering. It's not, I'm not suffering physically for it. See, suffering is not some, of, some kind of high road to holiness. There are people that, 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 that latch into fasting. I've known people that fast and fast and fast, doesn't really change much of anything. But there's almost this hidden thing that if I can deny my flesh, if I can somehow beat my body into subjection, it's going to make me a better person. No, it's not. It's not going to move God's hand. It's not going to change anything, okay? Now, there's sacrifice, but there's not suffering. Are, are, are you still with me? All right. Number five. Number five. I could say a whole, I could, I could do an hour on all of these points. Number five. You might have a wrong view of the Father if you're trying harder instead of being transformed. If you're trying harder instead of being transformed. The gospel is transformational. The gospel, it, the, the gospel is the power to change you. It's transformational. The gospel is not motivational. The gospel is not designed to motivate me to try to make me better. It's not behavioral. It's not trying to perfect my actions. The gospel is not trying to hammer me into something that I'm not already. The gospel is not uh, transactional. The gospel is not, if I do something, then God does something. It's, we were fed this thing out like, covenant is always two ways. You do your part, God will do his part. But if you don't do your part, then God's not obligated to do his part. That's not the gospel. The gospel is transformational. Jesus didn't die, resurrect, and live again and pave the way just for you to be motivated or for you to act better, or for you to try harder. He came as the firstborn brother among many so that we could effortlessly be transformed through grace. That's what grace is. I'm gonna give you my definition. There's a lot of good definitions. I've given it to you half a gazillion times and I will continue to until it takes root that grace is a divine influence that produces effortless change as you rest in him. If there are things in your life that you want to change, that's fine. Rest in him and let grace effortlessly change him. In fact, if you'll stop trying to change yourself, say, I get messages. I want to stop smoking. How, how can grace help me to stop smoking? Well, I'll tell you what. Here's how you can stop smoking. Stop worrying about it. Stop trying to perfect your behavior. Stop thinking that God's moved by, by your not smoking or whatever your deal is, anger, or, you know, what, whatever your deal is. Stop trying to change yourself. If you could change yourself, you'd have already changed yourself. And if you had the power to change yourself, Jesus could have just stayed without coming and manifesting as the Father in flesh. Feelings of inadequacy that, that pressure you to dig in and try harder may be evidence that you have a misunderstanding of the transformational power of the love of God and the way that God sees you. The Father took pleasure in Jesus before Jesus ever did anything. It wasn't Jesus' good actions. It wasn't Jesus being uh, uh, behaving good. It wasn't Jesus uh, making a deal with God that thrust him into everything that God had for him. It was the Father's pleasure in Jesus before he did anything. The, the pleasure he had in Jesus, listen to me, that empowered Jesus to do everything that he did. And it's, it's when you come to that same realization that the gospel is transforming you, that's what empowers you. When you, see, when you look in the mirror and you see yourself changed and you didn't do anything to change you, all of a sudden one day you're driving in your car and you think, man, I haven't blown a gasket in... 30 days. I haven't blown up. I, I haven't 
flip somebody off in traffic in a while. I, I'm even stopping and letting people in front of me at the stoplight. I'm, I'm, I'm being courteous. I'm starting to, I didn't try to do that. All of a sudden, I'm just different. It, this gospel is transformational. Knowing he is pleased with you. Look me right in the eye. Knowing that he's pleased with you, apart from your actions or your works or your striving, is what builds confidence. It's what gives confidence. It powers the inner transformation to be as he is. All right, James chapter one. I'm going to start landing this point. James chapter one. Let me just read this because these two verses actually show uh, the father's commitment and his character and his will. James chapter one. Let me read just verse 17 and 18 real quick. Verse 17. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above. It comes down from the Father of the lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. That's God's character. Notice this again. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights. So it's automatically given to us. It's not what we, it's not what we are. It's, it, it's, it's part of the transformation that God weaves into us as he shows us his goodness. See, it's the goodness of God that leads us to change our mind. I think that's Romans 2. I can't remember the verse. It just popped into me while I'm sitting here. It's the, it's the goodness of God that leads us to repent or metanoia, change our mind, change direction. It's not our repentance that releases the goodness of God. It's not my behavior that releases the goodness of God. It's not my making a deal with God that changes God's mind toward me. It's the goodness of God experiencing his goodness. Or what that 17th verse says, it's experiencing every good gift that comes down from the Father of lights in whom there's no variables. He doesn't, he's not one way today, another way tomorrow. Now watch verse 18. That, that, that verse 17 is his character. Now watch, here's his will. Here's his will. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of firstborn or firstfruits of his creatures. So of his own will, he brought us forth. He transformed it. He did, he did all of the work. Now here's what our older brother Jesus did. Jesus knew and passed on to us the simple truth that our image and perception of the Father is going to determine almost everything that goes on in life. The way that you see him, most everything that transpires in the way that you live your life on a daily basis comes from the way that you perceive the Father. It did for Jesus. It sure did for Jesus. Uh, this is my last scripture. Acts chapter 10, verse 38 says, How God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil. So what was Jesus' perception of the Father? That he was anointed, that God was good, and that God empowered him, and that every good thing he did, every deliverance from uh, uh, an opposing force, an adversarial force, came because of the Father's acceptance of him. So in Jesus, when we look at Jesus, I want you to catch this. In Jesus, every distortion, every wrong perception about the nature and the heart and the intention of the Father is totally cleared up. Jesus cleared it up. You'll never find all these five that we came through. The reason they come into us, the reason they try to wedge into us, even when you're walking in grace and you mess up, you go to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and say, man, I sure blew that one. I, I feel so bad. I feel so much shame. See? In Jesus, the forgotten father of the human race introduces himself to us. The father introduces himself to us again through Jesus showing himself as the only legitimate father of the entire human race. There is one God and father who is above all, through all, and in all. That's Ephesians 2, long about verse 6. One father of all. Jesus introduces him. We forgot what the Father was like. We had a lapse of memory. We had uh, amnesia. We forgot what God was like. Jesus comes back and shows us. So Jesus is saying, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. All the misconceptions in the Old Testament, all the misunderstanding. When we read the Old Testament, you know, and we, we don't understand what's going on underneath, or we get a picture of the Father that is totally unlike Jesus. Jesus came to say, hey guys, 
You're viewing it wrong. You got it set up wrong. That's not how he is. He got rid of all the mythologies about an angry deity. Instead, he overwhelms us. And I'm done. He overwhelms us with the Father's resolve and the Father's determination to love every one of us back to himself. He's already done that. Now we're awakening to the love that he's had that has brought us back to him. See, he reconciled us. He didn't reconcile himself to us. He reconciled us to him. In other words, he took out of our mind, Paul said, the thing that separated us. And he just went through five of them that could well separate you. God loves you this morning. I want you to know that above everything else. All right, now next Sunday morning, next Sunday morning, I want to take a pat. We're going fishing next Sunday morning with Jesus. I'm going to give you a passage of scripture. I just want you to think about it, meditate on it. We're going to talk more about perception, levels of consciousness, and the creative power that you carry within you. And I want you to, to look at Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, I want you to read the first 11 verses. And I'm going to be meditating. Everything I'm going to bring you next week is going to come out of my time in meditating and, and stewing, cooking in the crock pot. Luke chapter 5, the first 11 verses. I want you to look at it. And I bet you we're going to come and see some of the same things together. So good to be with you. Thank you for your prayers. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for your monthly support. Man, It you don't know how it encourages me when you support me on some level monthly. It's like saying, Don Keithley, I got skin in the game with you, brother. We are on this journey together, and I'm with you. We're carrying this message of grace and the good news around the world. And it's like I, I'm yoked up with somebody. I'm yoked up with people. Thank you for your prayers. Thank you for your contributions, your support. We'll see you Wednesday night at The Secret Place, 7 o'clock Central Time on the Don Keithley Ministry page. Make sure you subscribe, hit the like, and leave a comment. See you Wednesday night, next Sunday morning, 10 a.m., at the Digital Cathedral. You have a wonderful week.